Hi, I'm Gianna Volpe, and thank you for listening to The Heart of the East End on WLIWFM, the show where we get to the heart of any matter at hand with folks from all walks of life on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. We stream online at WLIW.org radio and welcome your comments, questions, and collaborations of all kinds on The Heart of the East End. Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, I'm Gianna Volpe with local news on Long Island's only NPR radio station. A South Old Town employee has been suspended without pay, and four others are also facing disciplinary charges stemming from the police department's response to a colleague's May 2020 retirement party in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Vera Chinise reports on Newsday.com that Supervisor Scott Russell said during Tuesday's town board meeting that the charges follow an investigative report prompted by the party, which appeared to violate the state's early pandemic protocols. On May 29, 2020, Kutchog residents complained that Southhold police ignored several calls to the department, reporting that dozens of people were at a party at a Kutchog tree farm owned by former police sergeant Stephen Zuhoski, and were not following social distancing protocols, as well as reportedly setting off fireworks. Zuhoski, who worked in the department for nearly 24 years, had retired that day. Protocols in place at the time from the office of then-Governor Andrew M. Cuomo banned large gatherings and required social distancing. The board voted unanimously, uh, 6-0, to appoint a hearing officer in the matter and institute the suspension, which is in effect until the determination of the hearing. The resolutions do not state what charges the individuals face and identify them only by their employee numbers. Quote, I cannot disclose the identity of the employees. That's why we use the employee numbers, Russell said during the meeting. They are all entitled to due process. The day of the party, residents said the police were dismissive of their complaints and flouted the law. No mention of the incident appeared in the weekly South Old Town Police Blotter, and Chief Martin Flatley said at the time that, quote, I don't have any direct knowledge of what occurred at other celebrations after ours, referring to a traditional walkout ceremony that day at police headquarters for Zuhoski and two other officers leaving the force. In July 2020, the town retained Justin Block of Central Islip-based Sinreich, uh, Kozakov, and Messina LLP as special counsel to the town to investigate the police department's response to the party. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office also launched an investigation. Further west, the plan to bring an NHL-sized hockey rink, or ice rink as it were, to Stotsky Park has been put on ice after Riverhead's Recreation Advisory Committee on Wednesday recommended against building the arena on one of two soccer fields at the flagship park. Uh, the Recreation Advisory Committee did not vote on the plan to build the ice rink at Stotsky Park. There was a strong unanimous consensus among committee members against building the rink at Stotsky Park, according to committee member George Gabrielson. The committee voted to table a decision on the proposal until questions about the plan are answered by town officials. Alec Lewis and Denise Civiletti report on RiverheadLocal.com that the town of Riverhead began negotiating with Peconic Hockey Foundation in June to site a domed rink at Stotsky Park after abandoning plans to put the facility at Veterans Memorial Park in Calverton. 
Town officials had been in discussions with Peconic Hockey Foundation to site the indoor rink at the 90-acre Calverton Park since at least 2020. But the largely undeveloped town park carved out of the acreage deeded to Riverhead by the U.S. Navy in 1988, uh, excuse me, 1998, lacks the expensive infrastructure needed to support such a facility. Riverhead Town Attorney Eric Howard said on Tuesday that the town board would look to elicit a lot of feedback from the public about the Stotsky proposal. On the South Fork, East Hampton Town Beaches opened again on Thursday after being closed Wednesday afternoon because of shark sightings. Michael Wright reports on 27East.com that East Hampton Town Lifeguard's first assistant chief, Jeff Thompson, said yesterday that the closures from Wednesday were primarily due to surf fishermen who hooked and beached two sharks on Wednesday near Indian Wells Beach. Thompson said that lifeguards closed the beaches to swimming out of an abundance of caution after the sharks were caught and released by the fishermen, fearing the disoriented sharks could be ill-tempered after their release and could pose a threat to swimmers in the area. East Hampton Village also closed its beaches on Wednesday because of shark sightings to the east, and it too reopened its beaches yesterday. And finally, the recent proposal by Adam Potter to create a major affordable housing and commercial development in the heart of the village was not on Tuesday's Sag Harbor Village Board agenda, but that didn't stop dozens of people from attending to voice trepidation about the impacts Major developments, including the expected plans for a new Bay Street Theater and rumors of a parking garage on the gas ball lot, could have on the village. Stephen J. Coates reports on 27East.com that Catherine Levy, who joined three others last week in writing an open letter calling for a transparent and comprehensive review of the proposals, said an open forum was needed to allow residents to voice their concerns. Levy said in the 30 years she had lived in Sag Harbor Village, she had never seen the level of bitterness and division. Uh, I've seen this a quote and a half in the last year and a half since the Bay Street proposal was put forth. I think this meeting today makes it clear that we need a large public forum with more than three minutes each to speak about these proposals, she added as she was interrupted by applause. The crowd at Tuesday's meeting was so large that many attendees were forced to sit on the floor. Mayor Jim LaRocca told the crowd that the board could not entertain questions about Potter's proposal at Tuesday's meeting, which has been filed under the name of one of his partners, Conifer Realty LLC. Quote, you are asking questions that are completely appropriate for the board when this application is taken up. I'm wondering if that means inappropriate. Uh, That was a reply from LaRocca, who pointed out that the Conifer Realty plan had not yet been formally accepted for review. He urged people to trust the process. Quote, what we have set up after a year of very difficult work is a platform for considering every one of these matters in trying to bring about affordable housing. That from Mayor LaRocca. Reading the weather here in Southampton in honor of our first guest, Cliff Chenfeld, joining us for the Friday morning tea, underwritten by Village Overhead Doors at the bottom of the hour to discuss the next installment of his new show here on WLIWFM Modern Sound. I got to look it up because it is not with me. Apologies. Here we are. Looking like a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 78. Hey, that's not bad after the heat wave we've been having. North wind 6 to 11 miles per hour. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 65 degrees. Calm wind becoming north 5 to 8 miles per hour in the evening. Right now, it's 71 degrees. And that means that 
uh, the beginning of this playlist is sort of inappropriate. We've been having such hot weather recently that I went with a heat wave beginning uh, to this playlist as it's uh, sort of a reiteration of the playlist that I brought to you a year ago today. Almost all of the actual tracks that I played for you a year ago today have been replaced, but the themes are the same. Starting with Jungle from their uh, self-titled record of 2013, The Heat, right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, Tommy Johnson, and another Martha Reeves and the Vandellas track, right here on the weekday morning and midnight show, The Heart of the East End. We'll be back. Still gonna bring the heat.
Jungle bringing the heat this morning. I am so excited. I have my best friend of all time here visiting uh, from L.A. and is in the studio with me right now, A., who, after I get off reading the bumbling through the news this morning, says, you know, you said unanimously. It's unanimously just, you know, for everyone who is screaming at their radios saying, what is wrong with this person? All right. Uh, one of my favorite um, Delta bluesmen, Tommy Johnson. This is Canned Heat Blues. It's actually about uh, drinking sterno gel fuel. Please do not do this at home. Uh, this was uh, apparently uh, one way that uh, some people got their kicks once upon a time. Again, very dangerous and horrible. Uh, not something to be done, but a great example of the Delta Blues, the pre-war country blues. I'm Gianna Volpe. Uh, this is Tommy Johnson. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. Which begins with A, don't you know? And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, found on the 88.3 section of your FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in western Suffolk County, online, streaming to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio. Can he 
Okay, the first track that I actually did play a year for uh, ago for you is this one from 1K Few featuring Schooly Heatwave from the What's Understood 2 record of 2019. Uh, Cliff Chenfeld joining us in just a few minutes right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. like we're just about through the heat wave of the last week for now. Little 1K few. We do play music from all decades and genres here on the show. I went with something a little more current, just in honor of our next guest and their show, Modern Sound, welcoming uh, on for the Friday morning tea underwritten by Village Overhead Doors, Cliff Chenfeld of Modern Sound. Good morning, Cliff. Good morning. How are you? 
Very well. Very grateful to have you on the air with us. So, so this second, is it the second episode of Modern Sound airing this Saturday at four? That's correct. Yep. Number two. So, so tell us everything, how the show came to be, how you came to be working with us here at WLIWFM. Well, I have for many years music business. I had my own record label called Razor and Tie, a publishing company. I started a, a kids thing called Kids Bop. Of course. Uh, I have um, been involved in music festivals. And I have just noticed over the last maybe, you know, since kind of since streaming came in and also it's just people got a little older that a number of my peers and actually people considerably younger than me after they sort of moved out of their 20s were not discovering a lot of new music and wanted to. And despite the fact that we have all this music at our fingertips via Spotify and the other streaming services, there's really a significant amount of tonnage to wait, to get through, to figure out and to find uh, things that are, are satisfying, particularly for people who are not doing this uh, on a regular basis like younger people might be. So I, for the last few years, I've been writing and making a playlist called The Modern Sounds. It's on Spotify uh, for, I call my busy friends, um, because I don't want to call them my older friends, because I actually find that a lot of people considerably younger uh, appreciate this as well. And it's really um, uh, an effort to identify contemporary artists that people would like to hear that they are probably not going to find on their own that easily and are not a really mainstream big pop act that they're probably hearing about right. anyway. There's just really a, a tremendous amount of uh, quality material and quality artists that are out there that are not necessarily household names that uh, connect very well to, to the audience. So uh, Modern Sounds is a show that we created um, that is built on that idea in which uh, we play a lot of new music and I try to contextualize it and give some background on it and have some fun with it. And uh, and we've, you know, we got off to a really nice start last month and we uh, air episode two tomorrow. Appreciated. Uh, you know, it's sort of digging through what's out there so you don't have to. It's a Cliff Notes version of... of- right of what's out there. And, and I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, for people who are busy, uh, this is something where you, you know, you're, you're on a drive to work, et cetera. Uh, and you don't want to uh, keep clicking the next button on Spotify or, or Pandora or, or what have you. Actually, even, even Apple music has that sort of function added to it. Now I notice when I get to the end of a playlist that I'm making for the station, uh, other other songs come up, so it's really interesting how uh, these these apps are all um, developing this sort of a function. But there's there's nothing like there's nothing, there's nothing like a human that's that's putting this together for you. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, who we heard in episode one? Well, sure. Um, you know, the I think the streaming services actually do a pretty good job of uh, of um, selecting, suggesting songs to you that you might like. Um, the problem with their algorithms is, one, they typically listen to what you're listening to and then suggest things that are similar to it. Right. So they're not going to introduce you. I mean, the whole algorithm is based on finding something that has similar characteristics and offering you more of it. 
So when you go that direction, like when they autofill for you, as you were saying, they're going to autofill with very similar material. I'm trying to make it much broader than that. And I think that, you know, a human touch on this and a human level of curation is important. Um, and, and you also, I'm trying to identify artists that I think people will like and also are not sort of one-hit wonder artists. You know, a lot of the ways that we listen to music today is through dragging songs into playlists, but half the time we don't even know who the artist is, we just like the song. So I'm trying to kind of go through the clutter and saying, here are great artists that there's a great song from them. These are artists that are worth digging into their catalog. These right. are artists who you should go see live. So it's a much more uh, comprehensive sort of look at it. And and then, you know, on the show, I'm also kind of contextualizing it so you learn a but the artists, some of the artists that we had in the first uh, episode, Tame Impala, uh, fantastic artist, Saint Vincent, um, Mitski, uh, Lord Huron, Celeste, <clears throat> The War on Drugs, um, uh, Rufus the Soul, um, Red, um, uh, uh, Bob Moses, uh, London Grammar, Tom O'Dell, Turnstile. So it's a, it's a I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, when I suggest and play this material, I'm trying to not include incredibly glossy mainstream things. And I'm also not going too far out there for people. I mean, I'm assuming that my, the folks who are listening to this who've been following my playlist are people who do not want to listen to necessarily something that's that extreme or that out there. They, wanna, uh, they don't want to just listen to songs and sound like songs that they liked 10 years ago, but they also don't want to, this is not sort of, I'm going to send you them to the extreme, you know, ends of dance music or or punk music or hip hop or whatever it is. I'm trying to keep it so it's pretty easy. Not I that the artist that. is a great artist, but you know, it's accessible. I, I completely, you know, it's it's funny. I I played Rufus yesterday. I, I am a fan of a lot of those artists, and when it comes to uh, saying that I'm a fan of an artist, I usually will only do so if I like all or the bulk of their discography and it 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 makes me think quite a bit of of how I put together the playlists uh, that I do here on the show just because uh, actually I've got a Lord Huron track up in just a few um I I I it's hard I I try to push the envelope a little bit now and then but never too far um I I worry um about about doing that because you don't want I people to turn really it off. Of you. you know, so let's talk about yeah. what's what's coming up uh, this Saturday at four. Well, Saturday four is uh, the next uh, episode of uh, of Modern Sounds. Um, I got a lot of feedback, which was really rewarding, um, both from people who listen to it on on the station and then people who listen to it online and. Uh, the one suggestion that I received was to be a little bit less um, reading and a little more riffing. So uh, there's a lot more of that this time, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, some fun stories. And I also tried to uh, integrate it a little bit more with my experiences. So I've seen a lot of these artists uh, in concert in the last year from everywhere from Stephen Talkhouse to Coachella and everywhere in between. And so I'm trying to share as well. Uh, their live performance and what they're like, you know, as artists beyond the recorded music that you're hearing. So we'll do a little bit more of that um, uh, tomorrow. And, um, uh, you know, off we go. I mean, I, I think that there's 
uh, just a tremendous amount of um, people who uh, appreciate this and um, love the fact that anything that they want, they can listen to in one second, but often don't know where to start. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying sort of trying to help on that level. I've been doing it for friends for years, so why not do it, you know, in a, in a, in a more professional setting with the potential to, you know, bring more music to more people. You know, it's interesting because you think about Kids Bop, right? Uh, bringing uh, radio hits and, and whatnot, uh, songs that, that could be for kids if only they were cleaned up a bit and uh, made a bit more uh, kid-friendly. This is, in, in uh, a way, a, a version of that. You're not changing the music, but you're bringing it to an audience that may not have been able to appreciate the music before. It's a really good point. Think about it, you know, without going too deeply into my past, but when we started our company, which was called Razor and Time, my partner Craig Balsam and I, the first thing that we did, and this is going to sound prehistoric to many of your listeners, is that we did compilations of hits from the 70s and sold them through direct response TV spots. And this was like just when CDs were starting. And uh, a lot of music was not on CD and we put song, we, we gather these collections and license all these hits from the 70s, make a TV commercial and sell them through 800 numbers. So I guess as I think about it, I've been kind of doing some version of this my whole life um, from creating those compilations to- I remember those. How to, what, what, I, I remember growing okay. up and watching it, those, it was, those commercials. Is yeah, that- Well, a lot of those, if they, if they were cheesy and silly, they were probably us. The, um, I, is it well, like that was a big thing about what we did? You would you would see uh, the artists or the songs like uh, going upward, but there would be audio from one of them, and that would be like highlighted, like yellow or, or red or something. Exactly. I remember yep. we did that. Disco Fever, Monsters of Rock, Going South, uh, Totally Eighties, the Seventies Preservation Society. I mean, that was that, that's that, that was how we started our company. It's um, it's cool. It's cool to see the growth, the growth and the movement of your uh, career in curation, uh, Cliff. Not to be totally well, um, alliterative. It's, it's it's fun, and I, you know, I just I I, I I'm it, it really it's it's funny because most of the things that I've done have stemmed from really personal experiences. When my partner and I started Kids Mob, we uh, um, both have you know spouses and kids and our kids were around the same age and we were going to birthday parties and and parents were freaking out about their kids listening to Eminem and their kids didn't want to listen to Barney anymore and so we came up with Kids Bop and uh, we've kind of always um, sort of responded to um, avoid and tried to fill it in the early days of those compilations and I guess you know I'm kind of trying to do that now a little bit as well as just trying to uh, make uh, certain kinds of music and, and make certain experiences more accessible and kind of cutting through a little bit. So I guess there's some line that runs through all of this. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, fun to just at this point find great music and just think about my friends who would like to hear it and then think about how many more people there are who are like that who would appreciate learning about these artists. Well, we appreciate you. We're super psyched for the episode two of Modern Sounds this Saturday at 4 p.m., just before we go live in Herrick Park for Authors Night um, from 5 to 7. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Cliff Chenfeld. Again, the next episode of Modern Sounds this Saturday at 4 p.m. This was the Friday Morning Tea, underwritten by Village Overhead Doors. And in honor of Cliff, we're going to...
bunny hop through the playlist to meet me in the city from Lord Huron's 2021 record, Long Lost, right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Tell me. 
We hopped right over Hot Hot Heat's Naked in the City again. We're going to do a one-decade jump back in time. Um, Meet Me in the City from the Baby's self-titled record. This is A's recommendation, and I love it. All right, so I actually replaced, I, last year and on this date, I played um, Life by the Abbott Brothers. I've got Murder in the City replacing it uh, this year, uh, the Lumineers after with Life in the City. But first, a very classic one, uh, Love and Spoonful, Summer in the City here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Sidewalk harder than a match, yeah. But at night it's different world. 
It's the week of the surprise guests. We actually have a special surprise guest 10 minutes before the NPR news break at the top of the hour. Jose Sebastian joining us from the Hamptons Dance Project, um, a partner with Guild Hall for this and this year's show, partly incubated as part of the new Guild Hall William P. Rayner Artist in Residence program. Good morning, Jose. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So, so f- tell me everything. I am uh, hopelessly ignorant when it comes to uh, Hampton's Dance Project. <laughs> um, Hampton's Dance Project uh, started as an idea um, after a show I was performing with American Ballet Theater. I was talking to um, my mom, actually, and I was like, I really want to present some dance in the Hamptons. Um, I feel like there's not a lot of dance out here. And she was like, well, get to work. And so we worked on it. This is 2019. We worked on it all year, trying to plan and organize and raise. And um, we opened in August of 2019. And, um, And it's just, it's been great since. I mean, we've managed somehow through the pandemic in 2020, and then uh, moved it to this uh, property that has this beautiful platform in the springs of East Hampton. And so it's an opportunity-based um, 
idea and company, and we've had uh, three successful seasons so far, and very excited to present the fourth one. Do you think that it was easier uh, to get through COVID by uh, not vocalizing, for example, um, moving bodies um, that are socially distant from one another and from an audience are probably less risky than, say, uh, singing, uh, you know, uh, opening one's mouth and and uh, singing in that way and projecting? Um, it was still pretty difficult. We uh, really had to stay isolated uh, in the beginning of COVID. And, right. and um, ABT, the company I work with, American Ballet Theater, got very creative and started creating all these bubble projects where we were tested like crazy and we were able to create some really special things. So, um, so it was hard in the beginning, but we found algorithms to make it work. And, um, and here we are. Uh, how has Guildhall been a, as a partner for this project? They've been amazing. Uh, we, uh, funny little story. Uh, American Ballet Theater has a second company that actually performed out here years ago um, on Layla Strauss's property. And uh, when I came back to look at a theater space, I had not realized that we had already par- I, I had already partnered up with Guildhall. And so it just seems natural to... Um, you know, reestablish a connection with them. And they've been incredibly helpful in making sure we're well taken care of and the word gets out about our project. And uh, this year we really partnered up and they've been really amazing just with offering this um, space at Catherine Rayner's late husband's artist studio and um, really giving us nice uh, push to get it and get ready for the summer or so, today. <laughs> right. And so I know I know the events sold out. So uh, for folks who do have tickets, what can they expect? Um, it's going to be a very diverse program, a lot of different types of music, different types of dancing. Uh, we do have a surprise guest that I can't share, but I'm very excited for ticket holders to see. Um, I'm excited. I'm very excited to present this program. It's been a a long month of of work. There's a new commission. Um, I've been working in New York City during the summer, which is not fun because of the heat. Right. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm very excited. Well, we're excited for you all weekend long. You can find more information out at guildhall.org. I'm Jenna Volpe. That's Jose Sebastian. Uh, these are the Abbott Brothers and the Lumineers leading you into the NPR news break at the top of the hour right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
If I get murdered in the city, don't go revenging in my name. One person dead from such is plenty. No need to go get locked away. When I leave your arms, the things that I think of, no need to get over alarmed. I'm coming home I wonder which brother is better Which one our parents love the most I sure did get in lots of trouble They seemed to let the other go A tear fell from my father's eyes I wondered what my dad would say He said I love you and I'm proud of you both In so many different ways Don't bother with all my belongings But pay attention to the list Make sure my sister knows I loved her Make sure my mother knows the same Always remember there was nothing worth sharing Like the love that let us share our name Always remember there was nothing worth sharing Like the love that let us share our name With Long Island local news, I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. Captain James Genus has been appointed acting chief of the South Hold Police Department, replacing Martin Flatley, who led the force for more than a decade. Town Supervisor Scott Russell told Newsday yesterday the move comes. 
days after the town board announced it had suspended without pay an identified South Holt employee and that four others were facing undisclosed disciplinary charges. Robert Brodsky reports on Newsdate.com that the move stems from a two-year investigation into the department's handling of an officer's May 2020 retirement party, which appears to have violated state protocols in place during the early days of the pandemic. Supervisor Russell would not confirm whether Flatley, who joined the department in 1980, had been suspended or disciplined as part of the investigation. I can't discuss it, Russell said. It's a personnel matter. Genus has been with the department for 34 years as a police officer, sergeant, and lieutenant. On Tuesday, the board voted unanimously 6-0 to appoint a hearing officer in the matter and to institute the suspension, which in effect uh, is in effect until the determination of the hearing. Resolutions passed by the board do not state what charges the individuals face and identify them only by their employee number. Three of the numbers correspond to police officers John Hinton and Daniel Mackey and Sergeant Steam, uh, Stephen Witzke, according to a town document detailing who pays... Uh, Southhold Town Police Union dues. The other two numbers do not appear on the list, indicating they are not police union members, of which Flatley is not. Russell said more information could be publicly disclosed over the next few months as the hearings progress, but that the employees are entitled to due process. In Riverhead, the Riverhead Town Board is considering extending the town's year-long moratorium on commercial solar energy project applications when it expires in October, although it isn't clear for how long. Denise Avletti reports on RiverheadLocal.com that the Riverhead Town Board adopted the moratorium last October after residents expressed concerns that solar projects were developing too fast in Calverton. There are about 660 acres of land in Calverton, either already developed or under development with utility-scale solar power facilities, all clustered in the vicinity of a LIPA substation on Edwards Avenue. The pause was intended to allow the town of Riverhead to complete a chapter of the comprehensive plan update, focus on how much land should be dedicated to commercial solar facilities and where they should be located over the next few decades. The local moratorium does not capture projects reviewed by the state's Office of Renewable Energy siting, which handles applications for facilities that exceed 25 megawatts. Riverhead Solar 2, a 36-megawatt facility in Calverton, located in the Edwards Avenue area, gained state approvals in June 2021 and began pre-construction this January, according to the website of the project's parent company, AES. And finally, the New York Times posted a story this morning with the headline, Saving the Family Business in a Beach Town Where Money Talks. In Montauk, millennials are taking over their parents' restaurants, hotels and shops to preserve a bit of tradition. Allison Kruger reports on NewYorkTimes.com that there are plenty of shiny new hotels in Montauk, the beach town at the tip of Long Island's east end, which has gone from rustic, rustic village to chic destination in the last two decades. There's Marum, uh, a sleek-looking lodge with fret linens and meditation classes, and Montauk Beach House, which offers a new vegan restaurant and a half-acre beach club, just to name a few. And there's Daunt's Albatross, a no-frills 1950s motel in the middle of it all. Leo Daunt, the motel's 29-year-old 
general manager, is determined to make sure it stays relevant and independent in this land of big money development deals. After all, the legacy of his family's business is at stake. As jet setters and influencers continue to flock to Montauk, deep-pocketed investors have pounced, offering long-standing mom-and-pop shops millions of dollars for their properties. This Spring Liar Saloon, a beloved watering hole that used to offer $1 beers, was rumored to be sold for millions. But a small band of millennials with ties to the area, like Mr. Daunt, are taking over their family businesses and updating them to ensure they stick around for at least one more generation. The idea is that as long as they're in charge, their families won't be tempted to sell. Daunt's Albatross dates to 1977, when it was bought and renamed by Rich Daunt, Mr. Daunt's grandfather, a retired Nassau County police officer. Leo Daunt had planned to become a history professor, but instead has revived and renovated the family business, Daunt's Albatross Motel. One of Daunt's childhood friends is Alexis Engstrom, 30, a former surf instructor who has lived in Montauk her entire life, except for one year in Hawaii. She grew up working at Montauk T-Shirts, a store her mother owned, and Miss Engstrom is now taking over. And the Times story also features Gray Gardle Gross, 32, who's taking over his parents' Montauk business. That's right, the gig shack. Quote, I wanted it to have a new energy, he said, adding that he's happy about his decision to take over the family business. I'm not going anywhere. Reading the weather in East Hampton in honor of our next guest, Jason Cohn, whose documentary Nothing Lasts Forever will be screened 7 p.m. tonight at Regal UA as part of the 2022 Hamptons Film Summer Docs film series, looking like a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 81 degrees, north wind 5 to 10 miles per hour tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 65 degrees, calm wind becoming north at around 6 miles per hour after midnight, Right now, it's 71 degrees, getting back to the music from all decades and genres with a little trampled by turtles. Life is good on the open road. Cooking on three burners next, uh, featuring Emmy with Real Life Baby right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
Just like my brother from another mother, Cliff Chenfeld, I am digging through the tunes out there so you don't have to. And you can just listen to The Heart of the East End or The Afternoon Ramble for that matter or uh, the Friday Night Soul or Urban Jazz Experience or Modern Sounds uh, or Freeform Radio and get all the best music from every age and every genre Our uh, featured local track this morning is Mick Hargraves' Real Fine Beauty. I've got the originals, Baby, I'm For Real. And then a track I listened to over and over again. It's actually one of the last standing tracks from the playlist from a year ago today. I did a remix of the themes from a year ago today, uh, Beachcomber from Real Estate. We've got Jason Cohn joining us in just five minutes for the hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema at the bottom of the 10 o'clock hour, uh, just after one, if you're listening to the replay, technically also this morning. I'm Jenna Volpe. Uh, that was Cooking on Three Burners. Loved that track. I hadn't heard it before putting this playlist together. This is Mick Hargraves. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Nothing like
Speaking of local music, I did just want to give a quick shout out to Vanessa Trouble playing the Rams Head Inn tonight, 6 to 9. She'll be playing with John Ludlow of Meacox Bay Dairy. Huh? She says, what's better than jazz and cheese? I don't have an answer for you. Uh, Jane Hasty on piano and Peter Weiss on bass. I'm Gianna Volpe. Uh, you know what? I'm hopping over the originals. Apologies. And playing uh, a favorite of mine, Beachcomber from Real Estate, from their self-titled record. This one for all of you out there combing the beaches this morning.
Real estate leading us to the bottom of the 10 o'clock hour just after 1 a.m. If you're listening to the replay, it is Friday, and that means it's time for our hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema. If you have never heard the term Blood Diamond, uh, this next segment is going to give you a peek into a very secretive and dangerous world. Director Jason Cohn of Nothing Lasts Forever joining us right now. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. Very nice. Uh, thank you for having me. I am so grateful to have you. Now, this is a story uh, I've I've definitely been curious about over the years. And, and as I understand it, it's very dangerous. Uh, when making this film, did you ever feel in danger? Um, thankfully, I, I didn't. Um, you know, the, I think that there was perhaps a time when the the diamond industry especially um you know in africa where we did we did travel and shoot in botswana a bunch um might have been more dangerous i think that this point in history though um it's sufficiently been corporatized uh so i never personally felt in danger although you know um there are extremely moneyed people with a tremendous amount at stake uh, involved, so there's always concerns, but I never personally felt on this particular film. I've, I've, I've definitely felt my life at risk in other films, um, but not on this one. You know, I'm curious because I, I'm I'm wondering, as someone who is watching lab-made diamonds uh, come into a, a world that was once um, chiefly uh, mined diamonds, and I'm curious long term what what that's going to do to the value of a diamond. I mean, you know firsthand some of these things. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on inside the diamond industry itself? Yeah, well, that's the $100 billion question, right? Um, will man-made diamonds, you know, you know, how will man-made diamonds impact natural diamonds? Which is, you know, th- there's already been an impact. Um, you know, when I first heard about man-made stones, I thought that they were going to, naively, I thought they were going to, like, make natural diamonds redundant. But this became a story when I discovered what is essentially a very, very deeply um, uh, kept industry secret, which is that these man-made diamonds are being surreptitiously mixed with natural diamonds. Huh. Um, and that this has been going on for a very long time. Um, nobody really wants to talk about this. Of course uh, For not. obvious reasons. You know, and, and you know, this, this started you know, in in a big way, probably around somewhere between 2008 started up to 2012 is kind of the beginning points when mass-produced Chinese diamonds, especially small diamonds, started flooding the market. And what's so interesting is it is possible to differentiate between man-made stones and natural stones, but it's a very difficult and often expensive process. And sometimes it's more expensive to identify a stone properly than what the stone is actually worth. Wow. Um, because you're looking for trace elements inside of the stone. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult. So the protagonist of the film is actually you know, a gemologist. And I, I like to think of him as like a Blade Runner style character who has to differentiate between two things that are identical. Because we're talking about real diamonds. You know, man-made stones are real. Um, so, yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about, uh, sorry, to, sorry to step on you, Jason. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that idea that man-made stones are real? What do you mean, what you mean by that? 
Well, there's diamond simulants like cubic zirconia or you know, moissanite, but these are actual diamonds uh, made of the same exact element that diamond is made out of, which is carbon. There are a couple of different processes by which you can make diamond in a factory, um, but it doesn't really matter. Both produce real diamond. Um, and so there's a really big question you know, in the market where it's like, what do you want? Where do you want your diamond coming mm. from? Do you want it coming from the earth? Or do you want it coming from a factory? Does it matter? And the, the movie really is a kind of a philosophical question um, into, you know, where does the value, where does value come from? Because, you know, while the movie is very much about this, you know, global conspiracy and a crime, it's also a real kind of, you know, deep dive into a question that has nothing to do with diamonds, which is, you know, why do we value things that we value and uh, where does that value come from? Right. I mean, you know, uh, in... Historically, I, I guess gold, diamonds. This is it, the value is placed upon it by how common or rare that it was. Uh, it's really fascinating to to think about how the technology uh, used to ascertain what uh, or or from whence it came, from where it came from uh, is more expensive. I wonder if that will become uh, less expensive at as time goes on. Uh, it's an interesting question. I think the the one thing I can say uh, as a layman, when I go into jewelry stores nowadays, I see a lot of ice. And by that, I mean, I see a lot of jewelry <laughs> that's just encrusted all over with diamonds. And I have to think that's because of, of the proliferation of, of uh, uh, lab-created diamonds. And it's interesting because you're talking about the fact that this is something that's been going on for longer, but kind of kept under wraps. Am I sort of right? Yeah, and and there are also questions about exactly how rare natural diamonds are. You know, you know. Uh, I was curious about that. A, you know, publicly, excuse me. I was curious about that because I'm wondering. You know, as far as the diamond industry is concerned, are there more diamonds than people realize, but they're kept, you know, away, so you 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 don't really know, like sort of uh, creating a, a scarcity. I mean, when I this movie was partly inspired by a you know a Christopher Wallace news segment in 1993 that I saw with it you know when I was a child that revealed you know that diamonds you know natural diamonds were far more common and ubiquitous than we believed or we were you know meant to believe. I mean, gold is a publicly traded commodity. We kind of have an idea of how much gold there is in the world, but because of the nature of the diamond industry, we don't really have a a very good idea of you know how many diamonds are and um and a lot of people uh, will argue that there are far more than um we're led to believe now again this is these are this is a very controversial issue um but yeah i mean there is a question of what what exactly when the diamond industry says the diamonds are rare and scarce what exactly does that mean what are the numbers what's the data and you know when a very few number of you know people and or companies control that um, it's very difficult to understand exactly how rare these stones are. Can you talk a little bit about the criminal investigation that's at the heart of this film? I know that you're going to be – the screening is tonight at 7 p.m. at Regal UA, and you're going to be doing uh, a post-screening Q&A moderated by uh, your AD, David Nugent. Or is that Hampton's film AD, David Nugent? Does he yes. have – Okay. The, he, yeah, David runs the Hampton Film Festival. Got it. Yes. 
Okay, so can you can you talk a little bit about this criminal investigation before I let you go and hope that sure. uh, folks are uh, intrigued and have their interest peaked enough to come <laughs> see the screening tonight? Well, I hope so too. I would love to, you know, for everybody to come. Um, the movie's a lot of fun. You know, I I, I had read um, a uh, an inside like a, a press release from from an inside of a, uh, a diamond trade paper from a gemologist named Dushan Simic, uh, based in New York. He's uh, Serbian-born. And he was one of the first uh, gemologists to publish that, that there were diamonds that were being mixed. And this was, I met him back in the, about 2013, 2014. And we started traveling the world together, um, looking for where exactly were these tension points or the weak spots where not only were the synthetic diamonds being manufactured, where were they being mixed? And, you know, over... You know, essentially a, a ten-year process. Um, I think we got a lot of answers. You know, we we went to the factories where they were being made. We met with people that were actually mixing them uh, in Surat, India, which is like the diamond capital of the world. Nine out of ten diamonds in the entire world pass through this one city, uh, a few hours north of of Mumbai uh, in India, where they're you know, I think the diamond industry employs uh, over two hundred thousand people in this one city alone uh, as cutters and polishers. So. This is where the mixing is happening to the gemological institutes that are trying to battle the mixing problem, um, which is very, very difficult. Um, new technologies that are trying to be in place to you know, battle the mixing problem, which is also a complicated story. Um, and the one man who is really trying to you know, save the diamond industry by you know, raising a red flag, and, um, and he was, I think, summarily ignored for a long time. Fantastic investigative work. Thank you, Jason Cohn. Good luck tonight. Again, nothing lasts forever. Screens at 7 p.m. at Regal UA. There will be a post-screening Q&A moderated by Hampton Films AD David Nugent. I'm Gianna Volpe, hopping over Donna Summer to play a little Delphonics. Didn't I blow your mind this time? And that was the Hot Sights and Sounds segment underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
hopped over Kitchen Dwellers this time. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for a future edition. I love this track that I learned this morning from the Ghost in the Bottle record. This is Los Stellarians, Didn't I, from the Cholo Soul record of 2014. Hopping over Erica Badu's Didn't You Know from Mama's Gun to play. Quite possibly Ashley Campbell, How Do You Know? We'll see what I give you in just uh, one track after this. Lost Stellarians on WLIWFM. I don't know if this is the second or third time I'm playing this one for you. I remember finding 
Ashley Campbell when I was doing an Ashley theme one morning, uh, hopping over Erica Badu to play Ashley Campbell's How Do You Know from the Lonely One record of 2018. Two Door Cinema Club, Black Pumas, The Shins, and The Fiery Furnaces leading you out to the NPR news break at the top of the hour. I'm Jenna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. You're listening to WLIWFM NPR Radio.
from Two Door Cinema Club to one of my favorite bands I've ever seen at the Talk House, Black Pumas on WLIWFM. You know better on the heart.
Tucking the Shins, Know Your Onion in My Back Pocket. You can find it on the playlist for today's edition of The Heart of the East End on the WLIWFM playlist on the program page there at WLIW.org slash radio. Leading you into the NPR news break with a band that my best friend A actually introduced me to, The Fiery Furnaces, and thanking A for joining us here in the WLI WFM studio for today's edition of The Heart. Uh, this is from their Bitter Tea record of 2006, which I actually have on vinyl, believe it or not. This is Waiting to Know You. Uh, I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome, whether I know you or not. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. But no. 